Hi, everybody. I tried a bunch of intros just now, and they all failed miserably, so this is number seven. So I'm just going to go with the classic hi, everybody, and get into it, because I would say something like, I'd be like, well, 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 look who it is. But then it sounds condescending, but I'm actually really happy to see you, or that you're listening to me, and the joke would fall flat. I don't know if it would fall flat because I'm not hearing like the response, but actually, I mean, the dead air response because I got no laugh track makes it, makes it a little hard for me to tell if anything's funny or if it, if it's landing for you. So how's this, how's this for an intro? You know, the self-deprecating, unsure, six round attempt at humor by commenting on the last five. How's that working out? It's very meta. It's very fourth wall breaking. Just call me Deadpool, I guess. Well, I mean, don't call me Deadpool because I don't live forever and I don't wear red spandex and I don't look like Ryan Reynolds. If I did, I'd be doing a live video stream of this rather than just a podcast because that man, that is a good looking man made of diamonds. That's what I think. But anyways, what am I talking about today? Besides just ranting and raving. Well, at least I got past the intro. So hooray for me. (laughs) That's the hardest part, actually. That's the part I get stuck on the most. I don't know why, but one day I'll come up with one that'll just be like canned and I'll just press a button and oh man, that'll be nice. Like I was thinking, my sister said Max Volume would be a good name for this, but it's not about music. It's about TV and pop culture stuff. So I'm not sure if people would get it because like, why do you need to listen to it super loud if it's just TV or movie content, not, you know, a song or some music or and max volume feels like EDM based or heavy metal, just something you want to turn up to 11 as spinal tap would say, but let's talk about movies and entertainment. Cause that's what I'm here for. So last night I decided to be all hipster and cool and watch hard eight, which is, I thought it was one of Steven Soderbergh's first movies that like was kind of like one of his lost movies that I'd feel really cool bringing into conversation. But, I mean, Soderbergh did Ocean's Eleven, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. He did the show The Nick with Clive Owen. Just very kind of too cool for school. Uh, follows very uh, amazing celebrities around and kind of just lets the camera roll. And it's just he's just a fun director. And he puts out a lot of stuff. Uh, Contagion, too, which I would not recommend watching right now because it's about disease and, you know, how a pandemic would happen in society nowadays in the worst way. So if you, if you have a little, even a little bit of uh, nervousness about what's going on in the world right now, don't watch Contagion. It's freaked me out. Gwyneth Paltrow, just, I mean, just see it or don't, don't see it, but just know that Gwyneth Paltrow has a, has a bad time in that movie. (laughs) But speaking of which, so I thought it was a Soderbergh movie, and then I instantly realized when it showed kind of the uh, the producers of the movie, it was a Paul Thomas An- Paul Thomas Anderson movie, and I was kind of shocked. I was instantly bummed out. I was like, "Oh, it's a PTA movie, bummer." And you know, I don't know if you guys are you know movie buffs or whatnot, but Paul Thomas Anderson is kind of on that top echelon of directors of the past thirty years. He's in that Tarantino, Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, just, I mean, his movies, you know, win Oscars. They're just a big deal. He does one every like couple of years. He gets people like Daniel Day-Lewis to repeatedly work with him. But I watched the movie, you know, it's a 96 movie. It's about like Vegas in the early nineties, but kind of like the sad Vegas, uh, you know, like 
waitresses that are trying to make ends meet by prostituting sad little gamblers with secrets, uh, a little bit of murder and intrigue, but kind of on a low level, like low criminal level. Like no one's really the smartest guy in the room. No one's, uh, no one's, you know, no one's a criminal mastermind. And it's got really good actors too. It's got Samuel Jackson, Gwyneth Paltrow, John C. Riley, Philip C. Hoff- Philip uh, C. Hoffman for like a minute. But it's kind of this sad sack horribleness of humanity movie. And I started thinking about PTA in general. And all his movies are bummers. I mean, you think about There Will Be Blood, uh, Phantom Thread. I mean, There Will Be Blood just about, you know, oil baroning in like the early 1900s and greed. And Phantom Thread is about obsession and kind of the way we beat each other up in love. And Boogie Nights, which is actually the one movie that sprinkles a little bit of joy in with the weird and the tragic but it's still about kind of the dark side of the porn industry and people hitting rock bottom. And I can't think of any really quotes from any of his movies either. Like I can think of like the milkshake quote from once I am from uh, there will be blood and drainage from blood. There will be blood, but they're not like fun quotes and no one has ever kind of a smarmy response. He kind of just, he digs into how terrible we are or Magnolia where there's frogs, uh, raining from the sky and Tom Cruise is a incredibly sexist self-help guru. And I don't know. He just, he takes these kind of, he takes humanity and just puts it in a blender. And he's like, here's the grossness of our insides. And I'm like, no, I don't like this. So I don't, I realized I don't like Paul Thomas Anderson. And I know that's kind of sacrilege for the, you know, the film community because he's, he's on the Mount Rushmore. He's on in Mountain Olympus. He's, uh, he'd be like a Zeus or a Poseidon. He'd be one of the cool main gods, like on the higher clouds than the other guys. He's not like a Hephaestus or a Persephone or even Ares kind of had a hot temper and was, even though he's got a war, he didn't seem like he was on like the upper tier. He was in the VIP room of Mount Olympus, but I guess not for me. So I am publicly declaring that I don't enjoy Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And I can't believe it took me this long to realize it because I would go to every one opening night and I knew what I I was seeing was excellent and well-made and he put a lot of thought into shot selection and, you know, the music behind everything. And he always has phenomenal actors, but no, just not for me. But you know what is for me? It is uh, the show West Wing. Uh, And I decided, well, I didn't decide actually, my friend, uh, Sasha, hi Sasha, said, "Why not do a West Wing podcast?" And I was like, "What would I do it about?" Because West Wing is seven seasons. You know, it's about uh, a presidency, and who who would I want to talk about, or would I, would I want to talk about general themes? But I want to talk about Josiah Jed Bartlett, aka Uncle Fluffy, aka the Commander in Chief, and he was the president in this eight-year run of the show. And the show actually didn't start as a TV script. It was actually a movie script by Aaron Sorkin, who, if you don't know, he did A Few Good Men, Social Network, Molly's Game, Steve Jobs, The Newsroom. He does these very cerebral, very dialogue-heavy kind of shows and movies. And, I mean, he I think he was like one of the poster children for the writers that did a bunch of cocaine and would churn out just pages and pages and come up with a script that was like, 
way too long. And you can tell, I mean, when he talks nowadays, I've listened to a few podcasts from him. He has that kind of stutter in his voice where it's like his brain is a little broken still. Like every time he has a pause and thought, he goes, uh, 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 like he's trying to like get out the next word. And yeah, it definitely seems like he, he had a good time when he was writing this stuff. I'll just put it at that. So in that vein of, you know, over, overwritten movie scripts, the original script for this was 400 pages long as a movie. Now, to put that in perspective, normal scripts are like 110 to 140 pages. Even The Social Network, which was absurdly long, was like 190 pages. So put that in frame of reference. Two dialogue, I mean, the dialogue from The Social Network doubled. And The Social Network was only two hours long because everyone in the movie just talks so fast, too. So that, like, 200 pages is just, that's a Bible. That's a uh, Encyclopedia Britannica of... Uh, of scripts. So the fact that he wrote one that was 400 pages and thought someone would actually make it, I mean, he was out of his mind. So uh, when he talked to editors, they cut it way down and make it the American president movie with Michael Douglas. But they used the stories uh, that he wrote in the giant script as the foundation for the West Wing. And the West Wing follows President Jed Bartlett's tumultuous two terms in office, kind of late 90s, early 2000s. I think he's based kind of on Bill Clinton a bit with kind of his care for the common man, his overall intelligence and his love and command of public speaking. And I mean, this show, if you've seen it, it's the smartest show ever. Everyone is in like the 0.00001% aisle of smart. Like they know offhand the word count for the 10 commandments. Like they're like, how many words are in the 10 commandments? And someone just snaps because 177 or like right after that, they ask, how many words are in the Gettysburg Address? And 272. It's unbelievable. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, who's, I mean, like, even if they're inspired by government, why would they count how many words there is just, just for that moment, just so they can flex? And there's probably 10 to 15 moments like that every episode. And it's just, it's mental tennis. They're just batting it back and forth. I mean, the conversations are a mile a minute. I mean, I would, I would kill to have one conversation like the people on this show. Literally, I'd, I'd murder someone. You tell me who, and I get to have a conversation like this. Although I don't want to get caught because I wouldn't do well in jail. I would be, I would be passed around. Or I'd be the guy who gets things. Hopefully, hopefully I'd have a connection on the outside or like I knew a guard so I could like bring in cigarettes or bring in, you know, candy or something. I don't know. I haven't really thought my jail life out. Everyone thinks about that once in a while, though. It's like, how would I do in prison? And my, my answer always is poorly. And then I think, but, and then I try to come up with scenarios. That's why prison movies are so much fun because you're like, how would I respond to that? And if you want the ultimate prison movie, by the way, that's underrated on Amazon, Shot Collar. It's uh, Jamie Lannister from uh, Game of Thrones as he slowly makes his way up in like the prison criminal rankings from like a nobody to like the Shot Collar. I don't think they say that in the movie, the Shot Collar, but they should. Anyways, so Jed Bartlett, who is he? So he's the ultimate and best fictional president of all time. And I will, I will accept any and all uh, contenders for, I mean, anyone trying to argue otherwise is just wrong. I mean, the only ones I could think of were Dave from the movie Dave, but he wasn't actually really the president. He was a stand-in who looked like the president. And we, we didn't really know his policy. We just liked the guy. And my dad always argues the movie, The Contender, Jeff Bridges, 
uh, role as a president is always kind of a charming, fun one. He always, he brings it up like once every three months. So I know it always sticks in his head. And I think he had funny lines because he would always try to get the kitchen, like the presidential kitchen. Uh, he would try to stump them. He'd be like, I want a shark fin soup with a, you know, a turtle head souffle. And lo and behold, they'd make it. So I mean, I think he more enjoyed that bit. But Jed Bartlett uh, is from New Hampshire. He's one of those like old families that landed on, landed on Plymouth Rock. His, I think his family signed the uh, Declaration of Independence. He's quite uh, proud of that. He has like this generational power and prestige to him. He went to Notre Dame which, you know, is a flaw to me, but, you know, respect. I mean, that's good school. He got a PhD in economics from the London School of Economics, which he, he flexes a lot. He's quite proud of that. He was a tenured professor at Dartmouth. He was a Nobel Prize winner in economics. And he was, I mean, it's pretty much established that he's a generation, generationally a great mind. Like, he's going to be remembered as one of the best minds of this generation. And he was a multi-term governor in New Hampshire. And he kind of got tricked not tricked but like pushed into running for president by his buddy leo mcgarry who was a michigan alumni by the way go blue and they fight about it a lot so i love that and i'm i'm a wolverine obviously and he was such a good speaker and just kind of gained so much momentum that he ended up kind of miraculously winning which is kind of in the same vein as uh bill clinton with his he was a Arkansas governor who, you know, pounded the pavement, great oral speaker. Uh, well, why would I say oral speaker? How else would you speak? It's a great anal speaker. He spoke great from his butt. <laughs> Just Jim Carrey and Ace Ventura style. Uh, now I'm thinking about, <laughs> about that, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get out of the butt talking business because this is a classy show and we don't talk about stuff like that. But so kind of based on Bill Clinton and he just this you know, Democrat, blue bleeding, social, uh, socially caring guy who wanted to bring uh, honor and respect to the White House. And he's just, I mean, every minute he's quoting some kind of Bible quote, or he's recounting Galileo, or he's bringing up Socrates and his thinking. I mean, every moment he's just flexing and showing you how truly intelligent he is. And that he's taking it all in, trying to reflect on history and trying to not repeat, you know, the mistakes of the past with great, great leaders and kind of learn from them and push America forward and push society forward. I think he wants, I, mean, I think legacy and peace and prosperity are just really important to him. And it's someone you want to, someone you want to follow. You want to, you want him to be your leader. And I mean, just another flex for his intelligent level in one episode, he's playing three games of chess against his staff and his staff is all super smart, you know, went to Harvard, Duke law school, uh, partners at law firms or great political minds. And he's playing three games of chess and just schooling all of them at once and giving them separate lessons about life. And my God, I mean that I just love, I miss this kind of snarky, smart, kind of smart alecky smart ass kind of person in power i don't think we see that as much we see a lot more anti-heroes rather than people we should look up to and i mean that's not saying i don't love my walter whites or tony sopranos or you know dr houses although i don't i've never really seen house but it seems charming i mean i've seen the picture of him with a pill in his mouth and i know he like pulls diagnoses out of his butt he's like 
he was sneezing three times. So that means he has Hodgkinson lymphoma uh, on his left knee. So let's put a telephone wire in his right arm and shake him three times and bam, he's cured. But yeah, that seems neat, but I'll check it out at some point, but it just seems a little bit ridiculous. But I mean, so I miss this kind of noble hero. I mean, and also they make him, I mean, they make him a fully formed character too. He's a king of dad jokes. He just bad dad jokes all day long. His kids, he has three fully grown uh, daughters who he's like really overprotective of. But, you know, they always roll their eyes at his jokes. And so does the staff. He's like, they're like, come on, you know, this is so corny. And he's got all these sarcastic quibs. But he's also immensely thoughtful and cares, uh, cares about his staff as people. Like there's this one scene where his bag man, who's the guy who, the young guy who kind of sets his schedule and is always around him. His name's Charlie. And one Thanksgiving, he puts him on the task of, finding a new carving knife for him for, you know, carving up the turkey for Thanksgiving dinner. And Charlie's, you know, researching German knives, 20-year-old Japanese knives. He's He knows, like, the texture, the cutting style. He becomes, like, an expert in it. But every knife uh, the president rejects over and over again. And you're like, man, President Bartlett's really being kind of a dick. Like, what what the heck? I mean, why, did, why does this matter so much? And finally, Charlie, by the end of the episode, after knife number, like, seven, he goes... Hey, what's so what's the deal? I mean, like they all just cut meat. And he's like, no, but it's something my father passed. I mean, my grandfather passed to his father and my father passed to me. And one day I'm going to pass it to someone. And he goes, and Charlie goes, well, why don't we have one then? He goes, I do, but I'm, I'm passing it on to you. And he shows him the knife that he's passing on to him. And he's like, I, I thought I knew all the uh, brands. I don't know who this is. PR. It's like, oh, it was given to my uh, family by a silversmith by the name of Paul Revere. And it's like, I mean, if you don't get choked up at that, that he gave him Paul, a Paul Revere made uh, turkey cutting knife. I mean, carving knife. I mean, and he's just like, I love you very much. And I'm very proud of you. And, you know, he's willing to put his uh, emotions on his sleeves and tell people how he honestly feels. And that's, that's the, that's the love for him that he, he's, he puts himself out there, even though he's the smartest guy in the room normally, and that he can blow up and get, you know, very mad and very kind of uh curmudgeon-y when he doesn't get his way, but he realizes the error of his ways. He's willing to apologize. He's willing to tell you how he feels. And that's someone you want to follow because you know, that's a fully formed human being. And that's rare in someone of just such great intelligence and power. And also, I mean, the things that make him human, he has dietary struggles, which is definitely a Clinton thing, I think. He loves like steak, potatoes, shrimp, pasta, ice cream, and just general decadence. He gets excited about like fancy meals. He has fancy uh, French cooks come and cook for him sometimes. And he could lose some weight and he knows it. And, but he, he just can't resist. I mean, how could you, if you had you know, top level chefs begging to cook for you. And also you had a 24 seven, you know, Michelin star rated cook downstairs for whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted, I would probably be like 500 pounds. I'd be like a William Taft president. He gets stuck in a bathtub. You hear that about that? He, he got stuck in a bathtub and they had to like saw him out. And that's, that would be me, I think. Or maybe I'd go like hyper healthy. And I'd be like, listen, don't listen to what I say you know, when I'm craving something, you got to tell you got to just shove me full of vegetables because I'm running the country. I, I need to be clear of mind. I can't be, can't be full of steak and, you know, fried onions and mashed potatoes. I, I could be, um, maybe I'd be more content and then I'd be less ornery. 
So I don't know. I don't know what kind of president I'd be. I'd be fat and happy or svelte and, you know, thinking right. But either way, I am not going to be president. So I think we're, I think we're good. We've, we've dodged a bullet, people. So don't worry. Bartlett's president. I'm not. And I mean, just to add to his humanity, he smokes a cigarette every, uh, every once in a while outside of the Oval Office when he's uh, stressed. And he's always trying to quit. You know, he, borrow, he bums one off the social Secret Service. He doesn't like have them on him. But he never truly does. And it's just you, you feel for him that, you know, this job is just immensely stressful. I mean, they, def- they definitely don't pull punches with how hard this job is because over the first year or two, even, I mean, despite him being full of vigor and full of intelligence, they falter pretty much through the first and second season before they find their footing. Because I think it's a monumental jump to be the governor of a small state to being president of the United States and commander in chief of the, you know, army, military, Navy, air force. That's just a giant leap. And I think they show the, uh, the growing pains and it makes the show more satisfying that you see them struggle and then succeed. And also, I mean, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but by the end of season one, you find this out. He has uh, non-relapsing multiple sclerosis that he's been hiding from everybody. And he pays the price for not telling people. I mean, he gets put through congressional hearings and almost loses his presidency, but he also educates the public on multiple sclerosis and shows that, you know, it's not a disease that's going to affect his effectiveness as a president, even though it can affect his body. Yeah. His mind's still sharp and he's still, and I guess the multiple sclerosis society gave him a commendation for really depicting the disease in a positive light and showing people that people with this ailment can really still move on and, you know, do well in life. So props to them. I mean, that's rare that a show can, a show can simultaneously be entertaining and be educational and progressive. Like, I don't know if anyone watches the show billions, but uh, Taylor Mason is the first uh, non-binary character in like a major show on uh, the major networks. And I mean, they play it to perfection and it's just inspiring and a lot of there's been a lot of positive feedback so when you can do those two that's a great balancing act that is pretty hard i can't think of many other examples of when that's occurred so i'll have to rack my brain and think but props to them and props to billions i'll do a billions podcast some other time though love billions oh man and that's that's fun for another reason i mean in this show everyone's the greatest version of themselves in a prideful way and that in that show people are the sleaziest versions to get a dollar so that is, and also like just competitive and, you know, trying to rip each other apart. So basically like the two sides of humanity. So that, that would be a good contrast kind of if you watch one and then the other, it's kind of a like yin and yang of humanity. But Billions is funny and not like Paul Thomas Anderson movies, which are sad and macabre. And I can't believe I liked him for so long. What, what was wrong with me? And go watch one right now and tell me you like it or come talk to me about what what made you feel great by the end of watching it. I'd love to hear it because maybe I'm crazy because I didn't watch it at like 2, 2.30 in the morning. But anyways, so what makes back to Jed Bartlett and his wonderful eight-year presidency. And I love that he's ultra competitive too. He doesn't really know how to lose or is very ill-prepared to lose. Uh, they're once playing a pickup basketball game and they're using only uh, government employees. And he brings in Juwan Howard, the NBA player. and He's supposedly on staff as like a health liaison and 
they also mentioned that once they were playing doubles in tennis and he brought Steffi Graf to play with him and like try to play it off like she was just someone normal. <laughs> so I love that. That's how a lot of us would act, you know, like, oh, what? What do you mean? Steffi Graf? I don't know. But you just love to win because winning is fun. And you could tell that he he battles sometimes with his need to win is almost overpowers his judgment sometimes. So watching him fight with his inner demons is also kind of an interesting thing. But he, I do love, too, that he listens to everyone around him. Like, he can be convinced by others, and but in the end, he makes the call and holds himself and himself alone accountable. He's not going to have other people fall on their swords. This is, you know, the buck stops with him, as uh, Truman would say. So Truman, yeah, Truman will be proud of this president, I think. So, yeah, I like Truman. I, li- I always think of that about that newspaper where like he they said Dewey wins or something like that and he's holding it up laughing like what a what a great win that the newspapers didn't even think you were going to win and you get to flex it and show it in their face I'm saying flex a lot today i don't know why i haven't been i haven't been in the gym in like a day or two and by gym i mean my weights in my uh, living room so maybe i'll pump the iron and get those flexes out in a physical way rather than saying it 37 times like I said, this is a word salad. I don't want to give you, you know, stale croutons and dry lettuce. I want some beets. I want some uh, heirloom tomatoes. I want some fresh basil. I want some chickpeas. I want some kale. What else is good in this salad? Some shredded carrot. Get some color in there. I just, I want a rainbow. I want you to look down on your plate and be like, wow, a rainbow was made before me and I shall eat this rainbow and be healthy and be happy. So that's that's the word play I'm going for. I hope I hope that popped into your mind and made you happy. So I mean, speaking of wordplay, the I mean the amount of I mean the the thesauruses that were used and went through for the scripts on this are just I can't even imagine how they wrote this how they wrote this show because everything's a long speech. I listen I listen to the show without uh without the visuals a lot of the time because it's so verbal that you really don't need any kind of visual stimulation. It's, it's almost like a podcast. I mean, it's, you just get the feel of it. I don't think much is gained. I mean, once in a while there's some acting where you see like, you know, someone's eyes tearing up or you see the anger in their face, which, you know, the visual component would help, but you really don't need it. And that's, I mean, that's a testament to Sorkin. Sorkin is kind of the God King of that too. I mean, he just loves his dialogues, which it's weird because, I mean, I, like I said, when he speaks in person, he's very underwhelming. I mean, maybe, I guess, you know, introverts can write, like, you got like an Emily Dickinson who didn't like going outside and she could write, you know, like no one's business. I think sometimes people that can't do teach or people that can't do write. So I think Sorkin saw those inefficient, I mean, inefficiencies himself and felt self-conscious and just created these prolific characters kind of as a response so good for him and good for us because this show oh by the way this show is on on uh on netflix so you can rip through it whenever highly recommend it and i mean the best seasons are seasons one through four because sorkin left the show after the fourth season but seasons five and six and seven are still really good so i mean by that time they had the rhythms of the characters and all that so i i like both i like both halves i mean you know it's like splitting a baby it's fine well no it's not like splitting a baby it's like splitting the difference splitting the baby is like the bible see i'm in the bible kind of uh thinking because he quotes the bible all the time and that's a super interesting thing about this president too he's very theological he almost became a priest in college until he uh met his wife 
and you know decided to go a different way but he has serious uh kind of conflicts with his relationship with god and wondering you know sometimes decisions lead to multiple deaths or sometimes there's uh just unimaginable cruelty in the world that he has to deal with and he kind of fights with god he's like why are you put it why are you testing me or why are you testing humanity like this i just don't understand and that that's a very interesting kind of dynamic because normally you know the bleeding blue social democrats aren't particularly religious in that same sense so adding that component to him kind of gave him a different layer which i super dug and made him made him seem fully formed as a guy and i love he has this uh classic line he always goes what's next like no matter what they do they could ser- so they could solve uh poverty in america or they could end a world war and two seconds later he'd be like what's next because he's always moving he's always kind of to the next thing and it even shows in uh, when he puts his jacket on, he kind of whips it around his head and then puts it on as fast as possible because he's moving. I mean, the the, uh, the like definitional shot of the show is always someone walking fastly or walking, you know, with speed in a hallway talking to someone else, and they're having a conversation while walking because you know they got no time. That's that's kind of uh, the classic. I think like a lot of other shows made fun of that. And like I said, he's a high, excellent hyper, uh, uh, word vomit, excellent, hyper active, overprotective father. Okay. Yeah. Those words together, that that was a hard one of three daughters. And he even says, uh, like as a kid, when they were kids, he goes, their love was for sale. And I wanted it. I was their dealer. Get over it about sugar. Like he just gave him sugar and that was how he got them to love him. And I just, I love that he was just like, you know what? Screw it. I mean, I don't, they can rot their teeth a little bit, but they're going to love me. I should have said the sugar thing before I said dealer because it sounds like he's giving his kids drugs, uh, but he's not. Although nowadays you could argue that sugar is a drug. I mean, it's terrible for you. Watch those documentaries on uh, Amazon Prime, like that sugar movie, which is like a super size me movie, but for sugar consumption. And there's a bunch of other ones. It's sugar, the new uh, fat or something like that. Sugar's bad, and I'm a big proponent of that. Although I like natural sugars. Give me a good banana and an apple or clementine. Those, yeah, give me those all day. But, you know, you get the refined sugar, which is great. I do love, you know, a good a good Mike and Ike, a good, oh, you know what's great? Chewy runts or chewy lemon heads. Like the flavor, like the kind of the fruit punch ones are just fantastic. So, yeah, they're awesome, but they rot your teeth and your brain. So if you want to be like Jed Bartlett, don't eat candy, okay? Because it'll rot your brain away. And he's just a compassionate guy. He always loves the little moments with strangers. He like interacts with someone and he makes them feel like they're the most important person in the room. And I like that he has a complex relationship with his wife, Abigail, who's a thoracic surgeon who went to Harvard. And she's kind of his intellectual equal, but she's also kind of just as stubborn as as he is. And they lovingly clash on kind of a lot of issues, mostly women's rights issues, which he's, he's championing, but you know, he's not pushing them all the way that she would want. And you just feel like it's a very normal marriage for, you know, a president and a first, first lady. It seems, it seems like on point, like they seem like they nailed it. And he's a huge history buff, just a huge history nerd. He loves like old books and old texts and he brings back references to everything. And I mean, like when he argues with Toby, who's his director of communication, he just, 
they just cite every every uh basically every like major government and every uh reign of uh power of the last 2000 years and it's always impressive you learn something new and also he's just a vicious debater i mean he rips apart uh governor ritchie in his uh second presidential debate just annihilates the guy and he has great friendships too he's good friends with his uh his best friend and chief of staff leo he mentors the other people on the staff like Sam Shepard, Josh Lyman, and CJ Craig, who are his deputy direct, uh, communications director, his deputy chief of staff, and his press secretary. And they're almost like his children. He kind of wants to lead them along and teach them what he knows. And But he's willing to listen to what they have to say, too, even though they're a little bit younger. They're, you know, 30, 30 to 40 kind of range. But he thinks smart is smart and, you know, good point's a good point, And he's never... He's never opposed to listening to you, and if you're passionate about something, he's gonna he's gonna listen, and he'll he'll give it he'll give it some serious thought. But he'll usually be right if he's if he's against it. He usually has a spot on reason why. And I mean, also, I mean, so I mean, the quotes are just I couldn't even think of all the quotes. But he, I love that his passion for education that he just thinks that education. He keeps saying it's a silver bullet for like society. And that's how he envisions, he wants, you know, uh, public schools to be cathedrals to learning. And it's just that, that nobility. He's just, he's like ensconced in bronze. You just want to, you want to make a statue of him while you're watching him. And you, you, I mean, in our current state of president, you're kind of bummed out that we don't have someone with that gravitas and with, you know, this kind of command. And you got, you're kind of bummed out that he doesn't exist in real life that he's just kind of a fantasy of Mr. Sorkin, a cocaine riddled dream, apparently. But what a dream, man. What a dream. And just a few of my favorite quotes uh, that really show kind of how, how passionate he is about government. He goes, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. And you're like, hmm, yeah, you are. And I am. I'm going to vote for the first time. Let's do it. There's no voting right now? Okay, fine, I'll sign up. Or he's like, what will we do? What, what will we will do? What will you do? Uh, God, I'm having trouble with multiple. I'm going to skip that one. He says, decisions are made by those who show up. So I like that. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you got to show up and actually. And when he's thinking about uh, how other people can help him, he goes, you have a lot of help. You listen to everybody. And then you call the play. And it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like he takes responsibility, but he sucks it all in. He's willing to listen to you. And then he makes his makes his decision and what else can you ask for for a president and what can else can you ask for for a tv character and what else can you ask for for a free podcast from your friend who just wants you to have a little bit of entertainment and he wants his brain to leak out a little bit onto the audio platform for your listening pleasure so i'll leave you with that and i'll leave you with a what's next because after this you should do something be productive be a jed bartlett